scripture reading this afternoon is from Psalm 26 on page 542 in your pew Bibles. As you um, turn there, I remind you what we saw two weeks ago in Psalm 25. Recall there, uh, David was in deep distress and, and said throughout that psalm, Lord, let not my enemies exalt over me those who are wantonly treacherous, who hate me with violent hatred and seek to trap me in their nets. Now as we continue reading in the Psalms, we see that that trap with which they sought to trap God's king apparently had something to do with false accusations that they were bringing against him that David now in this Psalm, Psalm 26, brings before God in a prayer for vindication. Psalm 26 of David It says, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house, of the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men and whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. I'm tired of this sermon, The Innocence of the King, as it sets before us, perhaps more clearly than any psalm we've looked at yet, this theme of, of innocence and vindication. Um, False charges have been brought against God's king. Those false charges apparently put his life in danger, as we see in Psalm 25. And so in the midst of these these life-threatening accusations, God's king maintains and protests his innocence. But as he does, we see in him a faint shadow of the one who would come after him, our Lord Jesus, the truly innocent king who by grace enables us to pray this psalm with him and share in his perfect righteousness. I want to look at this psalm as we've often done from three vantage points as as we consider the innocence of the king, first of all, exemplified in David, a second fulfilled in Christ, and then given to us the innocence of the king, first of all, exemplified in David. He responds to these false accusations by saying in verse 1, Lord, I have walked in my integrity. And notice already the first person that he turns to in the midst of these false accusations is God. He doesn't first go and and set the record straight by, by telling everyone else his side of the story. But he goes to God and says, Lord, vindicate me. You know that I've walked in my integrity. You know that I've trusted in you without wavering. I've done nothing. I have nothing to hide. That's really the theme of these first three verses. David has nothing to hide from God. This word that he uses for integrity, it means 
complete or undivided. It, it means being really on the inside what he appears to be on the outside. It is the, the opposite of the hypocrisy that he mentions in verse 4. Because he is not a hypocrite, he's able to say, Lord, prove me and try me. Test my heart and my mind. I'm teaching us that when accusations come against us, that's the posture that we're to have. Not one of self-justification, nor one of hiding, but one of complete and utter transparency where we ask God to, to search and know our hearts and see if there is any wicked way within us, as we sang a moment ago from Psalm 139. That's what David here does. He submits himself to God's penetrating gaze, not just externally, but, but even internally, including his, his heart and his mind. One writer says he, he gives access to God to poke around in every corner of his inner life. This is not a, a self-justifying or self-protecting posture, but the posture of one who wants God to be glorified. This is how we need to proceed when accusations come against us. When a, a brother in Christ or, or one of our children or, or our spouse points out a way that we have wronged them, willing to entertain the possibility that they might be right and we might be wrong. Willing to honestly ask God to, to search us, remembering that, that if some wicked way is found within us, then that Christ is our vindication, and so we don't need to hide. But are free to open ourselves up to God's searching gaze, asking him, as David here does, to test and try us and see whether it is the case that we have walked in his faithfulness because his steadfast love is ever before our eyes. That's what David says in verse 3. The reason he has walked in integrity, the reason he has trusted the Lord without wavering and, and can even open himself up to God's searching gaze within is because God's covenant faithfulness has been ever before him. Verse 3, for your steadfast love is before my eyes. That's again that, that word we see so often in the Psalms, hesed. These words of, of, uh, that, that whole books have been written on because it, it's so, so bursting with meaning. It means something like um, covenant faithfulness, God's, God's covenant loyalty to the promise that he has made to us in love. That's the word here that David used. He, he, he says that he has kept fixed before his eyes God's covenant love and covenant faithfulness, and that is the vision that directs his living. Fixing his eyes on the promises God has made leads David to walk in his faithfulness. It is God's faithfulness. He attributes his faithfulness to God working in him implying that the integrity in which he has walked is because God has kept him. People sometimes accuse David in this psalm of being smug and self-righteous, like a Pharisee flaunting his righteousness. But here he attributes his faithfulness to God, to God's faithfulness in him, as must we. David is not proud and self-righteous in this psalm, but he trusts that God is good and so walks accordingly in faithfulness to him, giving him the glory. He has nothing to hide, but opens himself up to God's searching gaze, trusting he is innocent of the charges against him, the, the charges that Saul or whoever else have falsely made in an effort to destroy him. 
God's king is innocent. has nothing to hide. And so he asked God to, to prove, to try and test him in heart and mind. But he doesn't stop there. He, he then goes on also to ask God to test his, his actions as he, he points to the fact that his outward behavior is consistent with his inner life as he does not sit with men of falsehood, as he does not consort with, with hypocrites. We see that in verses 4 and 5, which actually sounds a lot like what, what the psalmist says in Psalm 1. That he is not sitting in the seat of scoffers or standing in the way of sinners. But verse 3 is meditating, setting his eyes on God's faithfulness. Again, verse 5, he is not sitting with the wicked. We see here the king's separation from the ungodly, even his, his hatred, he says, for the assembly of evildoers. This, again, is the same thing that the psalmist has already said in Psalm 15, that the blameless man is one who despises a vile man which is not talking about a sinful hatred, but it's talking about one who, who so loves the Lord God with an undying love that he can say with David in Psalm 139, do I not hate those who hate thee and loathe those who rise up against you? This is not a self-serving carnal hatred. But as one pastor said, this hatred is a natural and necessary part of love. If you love your daughter then you will hate the intruder who attacks her. If you are not furious at someone who hurts her, you do not love her. In the same way, if you love God, then the psalmist says you will hate the assembly of evildoers. If you love God, you will care when people despise him and say all kinds of evil things against him and and shake their fists at him in rebellion. And so David, like the righteous man of Psalm 15, despises these vile men who hate God. By the way, notice also how this language of hatred is just three verses after David says, test my heart and mind. In the same way that Psalm 139, do I not hate those that hate thee, is followed by search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way within me. The psalmist doesn't flippantly make these statements about despising the wicked, but he says them asking God to test his heart and mind. As must we. That's, that's the only way to pray something like verse 5. Making sure that our anger at the wicked is not self-concerned, self-motivated, or self-justifying, but God-concerned, God-motivated, and God-justifying as it is with David. And his um, separateness from the wicked then is matched by his love for God's people. We see that in verses 6 through 8, how he loves to gather in God's temple for worship, proclaiming in verse 7 God's wondrous deeds to his people and loving, verse 8, the habitation of God's house. We see in this section of the psalm, David loves God's people, he loves God's house, and he loves God's worship. He's saying all of this is evidence that these claims are not true, but I wash my hands in innocence. I love the place where your glory dwells. My heart is genuinely consumed with a sincere love for you and the corresponding hatred of those who hate you. I have nothing to hide. I have nothing in common with wicked men. 
And therefore, in verses 9 to 12, because David has nothing to hide and nothing in common with wicked men, he has nothing to fear. But ask God not to sweep him away with sinners. As it says in Psalm 1, the wicked are like chaff, the wind drives away, but David trusts that he will not be among them. Rather, like the righteous who stand in the day of judgment, Psalm 1, David believes in verse 12 that his feet will stand on level ground in that great assembly of the righteous. God's king, like the man of Psalm 1, believes that because he has set his eyes on God's steadfast love, meditating on it and kept separate from the way of the wicked, God will vindicate him and keep him separate from the wicked also on the day of judgment, proving that he has indeed walked in his integrity. And God will therefore redeem him and be gracious to him. He will save him from these bloodthirsty men who seek his life with these false accusations. For the king who loves the Lord, hates what is contrary to him, and meditates on his word and ways, God will save him as he promised all the way back in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, where God first introduced his righteous king, of whom David is a type. And for whose sake David writes this psalm, which finds its ultimate fulfillment in his son, where the the innocence of the king here exemplified in David is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. So consider with me now how every line of this psalm finds its truest sense in our Lord Jesus. We've said before that David is a prophet when he speaks to us in the psalms. Peter says that explicitly in Acts chapter 2. The book of Hebrews makes clear that the ultimate singer of the Psalms is Christ who speaks through his forerunner David for his sake. Bonhoeffer said what happens to him happens to him for the sake of the one who is in him and who is said to proceed from him, namely Jesus. And so he prays not just out of the, the personal exuberance of his heart, but out of the Christ who dwelt in him. So it is here in this psalm. David is speaking of of Christ, or Christ is speaking through David prophetically of of himself. Just just think even of this psalm's context. David's life is here in danger because of the false accusations of men who hate him. What does that sound like? A king whose life is in danger because uh, God-hating men, hypocrites and evildoers, bloodthirsty men who hate him are bringing false accusations against him. Matthew Henry said, Herein, David was a type of Christ who was made a reproach of men, falsely accused by those who hate him, slandered unto death. I think of verse 2 and verse 3. Prove me and try me. Test my heart and mind. Beloved, who of us could pray that? Could David, the, the adulterer, Sure, circumstantially, in this, this context, he could pray this regarding the specific charges that are brought against him, but, but in an ultimate sense, only one man could truly pray this. And David here prays it for his sake, his relative righteousness, pointing forward to the ultimate righteousness of his son. His integrity in this situation, pointing ahead to the full integrity of Christ. The only man who could truly say in verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence, because God's steadfast love is ever before his eyes, and he walked in faithfulness, verse 2, in heart and in mind. 
God tested and tried him, even on the cross. Or that, that word that David uses for tested actually has the idea of, of, of trial through suffering. It has the idea of the painful and purifying process of, of melting down metals to see if any impurity floats to the top. And in Christ, too, that testing took place throughout his whole life, which we confess in Lord's Day 15 was one of suffering. Where nevertheless, he did not waver, as, as David says in verse 1, never once did he, he sit with men of falsehood, never once did he consort with hypocrites, but with a, a holy hatred was separate from the assembly of evildoers. I just think of how Christ pronounced those woes upon the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Think of how he overturned those tables in John chapter 2. His love for God caused him, as David says in Psalm 15, to be that blameless man in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Yet who loved God's people, God's worship, and God's temple, verses 6 through 8, proclaiming God's wondrous deeds and loving the habitation of his house, as Jesus says in Psalm 2, zeal for your house consumed me. Or you can think even of the boy Jesus in Luke chapter 2 when his parents couldn't find him. They, they eventually did. He said, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? He loved the place where God's glory dwells because that was the glory that he had known from before the world existed. Andrew Bonar said he, he loved the temple because it showed forth his work as the true temple who through blood sacrifice would bring his people into God's presence. Jesus is the man of integrity of whom this psalm speaks, who prays by his spirit through his forerunner David. One theologian said, in the measure that the voice of this psalm is the voice of innocence, it is a psalm most properly heard from the lips of Christ our Lord, who alone is truly innocent. So the deepest sense of Psalm 26 is Christological. It is fully and eminently true of him and him only, and to him we apply it in singing this psalm. That's why I would suggest to you that the application we cannot and must not miss from Psalm 26 is to rejoice in our righteous king and take comfort in his innocence who though falsely accused and condemned to death by a human judge, God proved and tested him and knew his heart and mind and gave his verdict on Easter morning as he rose him up victorious, making his feet to stand on level ground, redeeming him from death. The vindication of God's righteous king for which this psalm prays was answered in the resurrection where the Holy One was vindicated as the pure and spotless lamb with whose sacrifice God was pleased. Although he was, in a sense, swept away with sinners, numbered with transgressors, those bloodthirsty men of verse 9, as he died at the cross between two criminals, nevertheless, God proved that the verdict of his accusers was false, that, that Christ's hands were innocent, and the sacrifice he brought to God's altar was pure. He was holy, harmless, and undefiled. And the glory of the gospel is that that innocence is given to us. That's the whole point of his death on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
the blameless one of Psalm 26 dies as a sinner, that sinners like us might take this psalm on our lips and be able to say by faith through Christ's imputed righteousness, vindicate me, O God, for I have walked in my integrity. My hands are clean. We cannot say that in and of ourselves. Neither could David. But by grace we can because of Christ. We are able to stand on level ground, verse 12, because he was swept away with sinners for us. As we come to Christ's table this afternoon, we do so dressed in his righteousness who gives us this song to sing in him and with him, rejoicing in his perfect integrity given to us by grace through faith. That's the last thing I want to think about. This psalm is not only fulfilled in Christ, but then given to us. And it's given to us not only in that his righteousness is, is, is imputed to us so that he is our vindication, but also in that what is true of us objectively by grace through faith that we are righteous also becomes increasingly true of us in reality as Christ by his spirit works this righteousness in us subjectively. This, this psalm is not only meant to make us rejoice in our righteous king, But this psalm is also meant then to become one of the means by which our righteous king works his righteousness in us. There is a moral sense also to this psalm as it teaches us the way to live in union with Christ. As people of integrity who are on the inside what we appear to be on the outside. Who can ask God to prove and test our heart and mind to see if we do indeed walk in faithfulness with his his steadfast covenant love ever before our eyes is, is that which motivates our evangelical obedience. We're able to say, I go around your altar having washed my hands in innocence. Matthew Henry actually believed that verse, verse six, had application in coming to Christ's table. Not that the table to which we come is an altar. But we do indeed come to remember the sacrifice of Christ and are to come having kept ourselves clean from the pollution of sin, having asked God, verse 2, to examine us and and reveal any wicked way within us. We are to come, verse 4, being separate from sin and from sinners, not because we are too good for them, but as Lewis said, because we're not good enough. Because we know ourselves and and we know our sin and and those temptations that would so easily entangle us. And so we keep separate from the counsel of the wicked and from the way of sinners but cling to God's people who we are to love in verses 7 and 8 for the place where God's glory dwells that, that the psalmist here speaks is the church of Jesus Christ. We're to love. That's why our preparatory form says that that those who seek to cause discord, factions, or dissension in the church, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors should abstain. Because this table is the table of love. To be received with humility and reverence together in the gathering of God's people as we consider not only the body of Christ crucified, but the body of Christ corporately in the church. And so this psalm teaches us as we come, with Christ, come to Christ's table to come with an evangelical love. Not, not as hypocrites, but those who love the habitation of God's house and love his people and therefore walk in love with his steadfast love ever before our eyes. 
This psalm, like all psalms, not only fixes our eyes on Jesus, but it it shapes and patterns us after his likeness as we sing this song with him. Asking God to search our hearts and see if there is any wicked way within us. Asking God to search our hearts and see if, if true love for Christ's bride really does live in our hearts or if we are those hypocrites of verse 4. Or those who love the world and the things in it. Does verse 5 not teach us about the, the antithesis that we are not to love the world and the things in it, but are to love the place where God's glory dwells? And so this psalm confronts us with, with, with the question that we must ask ourselves, do I love the church of Jesus Christ? Do you love to gather with his saints for worship? Do you love his word and ordinances because they reveal the king of whom this psalm speaks, the, the innocent one who was swept away with sinners for you and then vindicated on the third day so that not only he but you in him by faith might stand on level ground of the great assembly of the righteous to bless him and to proclaim his thanksgiving aloud even as we do this afternoon in coming to his table of thanksgiving. All this Christ has done for you. And so compelled by his grace calls you to to walk in in that same integrity that we see in this psalm with the spirit of the true man of integrity in you, the righteousness of the king imputed uh, to you and now worked in you. That's what we have in Psalm 26. And it's so very important that we get the order right. That it's not, first of all, just telling us to be better and work harder and have integrity as if you or I could ever survive God's penetrating gaze of verse 2 on our own. But it's, first of all, lifting our eyes to the righteous and blameless king of whom David is a type and shadow to to see that, that because he had nothing to hide and nothing in common with the wicked, we have nothing to fear. And now dressed in his righteousness with his spirit in us may walk in integrity seeking Lord's day by Lord's day from one degree of glory to another to be conformed to his same image walking in integrity with his steadfast covenant love ever before our eyes. Even as we come to his table now a means of grace meant to move us more and more to love for God and love for neighbor meant to to move us more and more to be people of integrity like Christ our king. Let us pray that God would do that as we now come to his table. Our Father in heaven we thank you for Christ our blameless king who David in his circumstantial innocence foreshadowed and whose innocence is given to us by grace through faith so that he is our vindication. As we can ask you to prove and try us, to test our heart and mind because we know that Christ is our vindication. Help us, Lord, to be people of integrity in him even as we come now to his table to have washed our hands in innocence, to have asked you to examine us and who have not sat with men of falsehood, who have loved your people. Use this meal now as a means of grace to make us more and more to, to love your people and more and more to love you and to hate the things that you hate. 
Use it, Lord, to set your steadfast love, your covenant love ever before our eyes so that we might walk in your faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name, the name of the true man of integrity.